Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pro Podcast. And if you might be surprised to hear my voice up front here, it's because after last weekend's IMSA race at Detroit, I said, you know, you guys at Daily Sports Car, you, Graham Goodwin, and also your young Jedi, Stephen Kilby, who's been standing in for me, you guys were very busy getting stuck in for the Lamont Test Day. Why don't I go ahead and field the IMSA questions? And then I'll pass it off to the two of you to record the rest of the show. So how are you doing, mate, by the way? We're all good. A blazingly hot weekend at Le Mans uh, last weekend. It's raining there at the moment. It's raining here in just outside London at the moment. But uh, looking forward to some good weather and a couple of surprises to come uh, from Le Mans onwards, from uh, Sunday onwards. We get back there uh, overnight Friday into Saturday and from there on in. It's, well, nine days on site at Le Mans. And then from there on in, it's, uh, well, uh, the following weekend, the Nürburgring 24 hours. So looking ahead to what's going to be a very, very busy couple of weeks. I love it. Well, let's say thank you to our friends and partners at Cooper Tires and also to the Justice Brothers. And why don't we rock and roll to start with some IMSA so I can pass the baton to you and get rocking and rolling myself afterwards. Good stuff, and great to have you back for just a little wee while of this show, uh, Marshall. Let's go with the answer questions. And first question comes from Justin, JTruck71 on Twitter. Uh, what do you see Chip Ganassi's team racing next year for GT, for DPI? We know it's not going to be that. Or with another manufacturer in DPI? I believe this might tie a couple of the questions together, Graham. I believe we had one, maybe two as well, asking about Mazda. What's going on there? Do they need something different? Has uh, the the Yoast collaboration been everything we'd hoped it would be? Just speaking as someone looking at a variety of things right now, of Mazda originally coming into DPI, Graham, as we know, with SpeedSource, hoping that that team could rise to the challenge. They did not in any way. Uh, also, vastly underperformed in terms of developing the original Riley Multimatic Mark 30, which was converted into a DPI using the Mazda turbo power plant. Then I think shocked all of us, right? (laughs) By signing team Yoast to run their DPI effort. I mean, truly one of those, what, where did that come from? I mean, amazing in terms of an inspired choice, pulling off the deal, I don't know any of the numbers, my friend, on what it costs them, but we can just assume having lived rather lavishly on behalf of Audi for almost two decades uh, at Le Mans that they were not cheap. I'd just say as I look ahead to what Chip Ganassi Racing, I don't know if I should say might be doing next year, but I would just say should be doing, and I'm hoping Mazda agrees is and provided One more caveat, I don't know the duration of their contract with Yoast. I don't know if there's an exit clause. I know none of that. I just know that what Mazda was hoping to get in signing that contract, Graham, was the Audi Sport I think we all think of. The one kicking butt and taking names at Le Mans. Peerless, uh, almost no mechanical issues whatsoever. Just everything top to bottom, best of the best. That is not the team that has showed up to run its its dpis Uh, there have been glimpses of that but not a consistent stretch of that happening and i would say 
this is also a little bit of a guess, but I also know a lot of it to be true. Uh, we have a situation where many of the, not necessarily senior members, but a lot of the key players within the team that really made those cars so bulletproof, so amazing, so highly developed, a lot of those folks moved on or went on to other aspects of uh, things within Audi Sport or just left altogether. And I can't say that the same team that did all the amazing things we think of uh, at Le Mans with their LMP1 program are the same people putting their hands on Mazda's DPIs today. So to come back to the Ford question and maybe to cover off a couple of the ones coming up here on Mazda, what do they need to do? I just say, look, <laughs> this Chip Ganassi racing team's pretty darn good. I realize that there's some that criticize them for not having a championship yet with the four GTs working in a highly restrictive BOP format in GT Le Mans slash GTE Pro. Uh, I don't so much hold that against them there. I can just say that at least here stateside, the people assembled to run the cars in IMSA's GTLM class from uh, the mechanics to the engineers to the you name it. These are championship winning people, championship caliber people uh, coming from ver various places within the Ganassi organization. If there's a way for Mazda to inquire and possibly secure the services of Chip Ganassi Racing to take over its DPI effort, that is what I am. If I'm running the program, that is what I am trying to make happen uh, right now. And then there's the one final obvious thing to mention, Graham, and that is the Multimatic linkage. Obviously, Multimatic building the Ford GTs and a, a key, if not core partner, of this Ford Chip Ganassi Racing Ford GT effort. Well, same is true for Mazda's DPI effort, with the car not only manufactured by Multimatic, but they also play a heavy role on the engineering and performance side, too. So if I'm just looking at who has availability, who has a need, who has a massive common partner in between, boy, that sure seems like uh, a, a, a no-brainer in terms of linking up going forward, provided that there are options and a willingness for that to happen within Mazda. So not breaking scoop exclusive, but certainly a kind of an analytical approach to well, an emerging couple of situations, really, MP, and, and you know, you've covered off a lot of the ground there. Also, uh, with questions on that from Lance Snyder, from Alex Eichmiller, thanks for those guys. Uh, but, yeah, interesting times ahead, it has to be said, for uh, the master efforts. Um, let's have a quick look. We've got Adam Smith asks a question about the Corvette program in IMSA and at Le Mans. When do we see the new Corvette come out? What will become of the old C7Rs? Will they be stuffed away in a museum or sold off? If they're sold off, could they be used in IMSA's GTD or some other GT3 series? Well, I know the answer to that one is they can't because they're not eligible for that. They're GTE cars, not GTD cars. But uh, as to whether or not they could find their way somewhere else, there's potential for that. But what do we know so far around uh, the C8R? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> not enough wish i could tell you more that's one of the great questions too when are they going to announce it obviously we've yep. mentioned in the on on past shows graham that if we're talking about wanting to get the world's attention as to what you're doing next well obviously there's no bigger platform than le mans i still don't know if that's what they're going to do 
GM in, in general is the most conservative. I was going to say very conservative, conservative, the most conservative manufacturer I know of when it comes to announcements. So would this be something they held until who knows IMSA's road America round where IMSA does its annual state of the series announces its calendar. Lots of big news. Would they do it there? Also knowing kind of Midwest is very much of the Corvette thing. Would they wait till the end of the year after the season's over? I don't know. Picking, trying to suggest GM's announcement strategy. That's always a fun one. As for what might happen with the current amazing C7Rs, I can only imagine they would have no intentions of passing those cars on, selling them, uh, or those cars really becoming anything uh, that we are seeing on any regular basis other than maybe vintage events, simply because we have such a huge version change coming, going from the front-engine Corvette to a mid-engine Corvette uh, from a just marketing strategy and overall where is this model going strategy. I just could not see how they would take a front-engine car and still have that competing in another class or passing well, it on I mean, to I customers. Can, I can add a little bit to that in that I can tell you there is a prospective customer for one of those cars out there. Can't tell you much about that just yet. It came quite close this year. Remains to be seen whether or not they're going to be interested coming into uh next calendar year uh but for one of those cars they have had history of letting some of them dribble into other forms of racing we've seen um uh, xgt1 and gte cars out there but not necessarily competing on the at the highest level could that change with the c7r well they've got three cars available not all of which have got um, you know, a record of major success. It would be interesting to see if they might release one of those, wouldn't it? What we do know about the road car is that is due for full reveal next month. Um, do I therefore expect to hear anything at all about Corvette's intentions of that car uh, at the moment? No. Why would they do that if they've not yet revealed the road car? Um, but yeah, we're all waiting with limited amounts of patience left, I think it's fair to say, MP. Yeah, very much so. And again, the the thing that strikes me is just the the bit of bit of a modifier to what we've seen in the past, whether it's Larbra or, or others getting hands on vehicles. Just again, knowing that the brand is making a complete hundred and eighty shift on what the Corvette is. So if they were to sell one or more, uh, I guess that would be interesting. It would strike me as a bit odd, though, uh, unless we're talking yeah. about call it a. a regional championship you know if it's going to be a vln car again i don't know but something where you say okay this is not a a major recognized championship where we're going to see this car in theory creating uh, headlines that are effectively celebrating the past and something we're moving away from uh that might be an, an avenue that i could think of but other than that uh i don't know when we're going to see the formal racing announcement. I can't wait for that formal racing announcement. And that's probably about all I got. Thomas Prendergast uh, asks uh, why it is that the IMSA guys can't seem to overtake without contact when in IndyCar, they don't appear to have that same trouble. Oh, well, I assume Tom is referring to Detroit. And <clears throat> if you watched Saturday and Sunday, his IndyCar races, Tom, uh, there was a lot of contact. So, uh, <laughs> I would just say that 
uh, keep in mind that we have, in some cases, drivers well encapsulated in their vision and or just ready awareness of what's going around going on around them in a prototype or GT might not be everything they had hoped for. And yeah, the IndyCar guys ran into each other constantly. So Detroit's just one of those places where there are not many easy places for overtaking. And there's a bit of optimism required almost everywhere. So if you take high risk passing plus not, perfect vision as to what's going on on both sides or behind or otherwise uh plus lower grip we had rain thrown in to make the track not awesome uh yeah detroit's just known as a place where contact happen for happens frequently so uh, i would not single out the imsa folks at all a couple more to go and uh, one comes from brendan yarmuck from facebook is there any rumor for the battery power deployment method for dpi uh, 2.0 is it some kind of push to pass system or a passive power always available system do not honestly know uh, i would imagine it would be more automated than anything but you know these are the kinds of things that could be you know changed or modified from one day to the next i think ultimately it will be a you know really chosen among the manufacturers and uh i mean the the series will obviously have a voice in this, but this is something the manufacturers are opting in for, then ultimately paying for. So I believe it will be something that they do choose what they end up with. I would think, and I could be wrong, but I would think it would be easier to have this as the proverbial push-to-pass solution because if we're talking about, say, the more automated torque fill only activated leaving the corners from this mile an hour to that mile an hour all those things can be done as well that's the thing we've been accustomed to throughout lmp1 hybrids uh most glorious era that to me just seems like a lot of extra levels of management and articulation that i don't know if imsa really wants that degree and i don't believe there'd be a huge cost increase there i just think from a personnel management standpoint boy if this is something that was just harvesting and there for drivers to use as needed with the push of a button um that just seems like a simpler way to deploy a hybrid a spec hybrid system across the entire category that does not involve having to hire seven additional engineers and paying those salaries to make this thing you know really sing and perform from uh, race to race. Couple, still a couple of more to come. One more from Justin. Is Dane Cameron the most underrated driver in sports cars? I would say he is certainly among the leading names I would put up there. Uh, if you think about what he has done with the last two wins, uh, the fact that he's a two-time IMSA champion in both GT racing and prototypes, uh, this kid can drive like you would not believe He's a yeah, really great personality, a lot of fun, et cetera, et cetera. He's just not a big, boisterous personality. He doesn't have his equivalent of Jordan Taylor's alter ego, Ricky Sandstorm, to draw a bunch of attention to himself. So I think because of that, he's very much of a let my results stand and represent me type guy, Graham, instead of a, and there's nothing against 
Jordan. I wish every IMSA driver had that alter ego to bring more attention to the series. But I'd say that's a really great, great acknowledgement that this is someone who just delivers constantly and yet maybe doesn't get recognized for it. So I guess maybe the, the ultimate validation here is he was driving for Action Express Racing, driving a Cadillac and Honda slash Acura and Roger Penske collectively said, we want that guy. And they went and got him. Uh, knowing who his teammates are, uh, champion in Ricky Taylor, uh, IMSA's pole master as well, Elio Castroneves and Juan Montoya, I would say that's pretty much the ultimate validation from the uh, the team side and value side there. And then you add in the fact that they're finally getting into the win column. Also, I think contributing to this too, Graham, someone I'd hope to get on the phone with this week for Inside the Sports Car Paddock, maybe I can for next week, is Juan Montoya, who has seemed to really find the place that I'd hoped he would be at last year. Uh, he seems to have really found an, an excellent groove and is working from that place of late in particular, which sure makes it a lot easier for the combination of JPM and Dane Cameron to go out and do really special things in their Acura DPI. Let's finish off with a double-edged uh, question from two different people, and it uh, sort of melds nicely from ACO to our Weckhouse Lums Elms Echo questions there next up. Uh, one comes from Justin. It says, uh, does the WC need a better streaming deal if they want to grow in the U.S.? Wouldn't free YouTube stream with 50K people watching be better than a payout with maybe 5,000 people in the U.S. watching? And uh, give me clout from the USCR group on Reddit. Uh, ask if we can give any more info on the supposed, supposed rumor. It's, I think it sounds a rumor or a supposed rumor that the ACO will realign itself with IMSA, separates from, it says here, the WC, but I think that means the FIA, possible reasons for it. So more than happy for you to have your crack at that. I'll, I'll get stuck into that one later. Yeah, the I mean, the WEC has flirted with relevance and awareness here in the States. I look at Formula One, Graham, and what they have done with their deal on ESPN, our largest uh, cable sports network here in the States. And they have basically done, from what we know, is you know, the equivalent of a zero-dollar type deal. Hey, we need awareness in the U.S. We need folks to know who we are. Obviously, a lot of the manufacturers who play in F1, they definitely look to uh, the U.S. as a very valuable place. So what do we need to do to get ourselves in as advantageous a place as possible with U.S. television? So it's effectively commercial-free or almost commercial-free, and the ratings have been very strong on ESPN. I'm not saying that it's a juggernaut, Graham, but in terms of a non-American motor racing property, Formula One is just seemingly gaining traction race by race with a bigger audience almost every uh, every round, and that's as a result of F1, granted, having a lot more money than the WEC, but F1 realizing that, you know, the value proposition to us, instead of trying to squeeze money out of whomever, is to actually get the biggest audience possible and to help try and grow this thing in a valuable market. WEC, on the other hand, knowing the financial constraints have been under for a little while with some major manufacturers taking a lot of money out of LMP1, etc., something we've covered ad nauseum, uh, they're 
finances are nowhere near as strong as F1. Therefore, they don't have, I would imagine, do not have as big an option to say, yeah, free here, free there. It sure would be a smart thing, though, for them if they were to consider that. And I know they have a deal with, I believe, Motor Trend TV and the Motor Trend On Demand app, and you can pay, I think, to watch that. Uh, I don't use it, so that's why I'm ignorant here. But I believe you can use that method to watch. Before that deal, I believe it was just paying for the straight, direct WEC streaming option uh, through the app there, which folks seem to like. I don't know, man. I can tell you this. When they were on TV on Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2 at whatever crazy hours, the ratings just the ratings were so low there was no need to actually keep score. And I don't know what they are today through the Motor Trend On Demand uh, app, what it costs, etc. I'm having to guess it's even lower. So I can just tell you, <laughs> as someone who navigates North American road racing on a daily basis, both open wheel and sports cars, WEC just isn't part of the conversation. It's not part of the average recognition that I hear of from fans. Obviously, our show, <laughs> it's a huge part of it on a weekly basis, but that's coming in through Europe with you and it being the core thing that you and DailySportsCar.com happens to cover. Just saying that where F1 seems to be bubbling up a little bit more week after week here in the U.S. It's been around forever. It was once live on major networks here, but went away. Mm-hmm. It's now kind of bub- bubbling back up and becoming more of a recognized thing that people like all because F1's made the effort to, or the, the call to say, okay, the value of having a bigger audience means more to us than squeezing money out from wherever. I definitely think with the WEC going all but <clears throat> all but silent here, they might be wise to consider that. And whatever money they think they might be able to extract from U.S. broadcasters, yeah, among the many things they need to consider, they might consider if that dollar amount is actually in their best interest because it's crickets in terms of recognition here. Let's see what they decide. Brave new world moving forward, of course, for the WC. Um, but uh, with numbers, the numbers are still going to stand up. But, of course, with fewer factories, again, with lack of BMW and Ford uh, now confirming that they won't be in for the GTE Pro class for the coming season. But uh, still, uh, we're predicting 30-plus cars and probably significantly above 30 cars for full season, but not necessarily uh, in a way that's going to raise those dollars that uh, would fund that sort of uh, marketing activity. MP, we're going to let you go. Get back to the bedside of your good lady. Uh, do give her all of our love, uh, you know, but both from here at uh, the Daily Sports Car sort of thing, but I know from our listeners as well. It's been great to have your voice back on for just a short while, and uh, we'll give a little bit of information at the end of this show about what the plans are for Le Mans Week. Uh, and you're going to be, I know, a key part of helping us to deliver that one in good, good order as well. But uh, for now, Marshall Pruitt uh, from the Marshall Pruitt podcast, uh, we're going to say our farewells and move on with Stephen Gilby. Well, with MP off uh, back to hospital to see his lovely wife, Chabral, and get well soon, Chabral, from everybody, as I said a little earlier, uh, it's time for this show to sweep from transatlantic mode firmly into two guys sitting at a desk with uh, recorder mode and reading from a list of questions mode. Not very exciting mode to know, but that's what we got. <laughs> Stephen Kilby, welcome back. 
Um, you're going to be doling out some of these questions. There's one or two that have been popped in uh, for you as well. And thanks again for stepping in for MP. Uh, let's crack on with Weck Asm's, uh Elms Echo and plenty of them. Let's go for it. Okay, so we'll start off with Stuart Hart um, on Twitter. He says, it's crunch time. Mm-hmm. Are we now expecting the hypercar prototype regs to be officially confirmed at the ACO press conference? Seems like they're going down a more aero-focused route. Hopefully that means fewer changes to LMP2, if any. Also, any discussions on GTE, GT3's future? Right, okay, let's kick off with uh, car car. And I know there's going to be a lot more on car car, so feel free to chip in with any that interact with what I'm about to say. This has had more twists and turns than a twisty turny thing. Um, it really has been a roller coaster, uh, which has also got twists and turns, by the way. Uh, but the, if anything, the language in the background, not from rule makers, but from manufacturers, was more positive at the test day. So what do we know? What we know is that the two most likely partners for an early entry into hypercar are, of course, Toyota and Aston Martin with Red Bull Racing. Um, that is what's driving at the moment the prospects of this coming early um, you know, and potentially still against the initial 2020-2021 uh, time frame. Beyond that, for year one, I think it's unlikely we're going to see any other major OEMs. Yes, we've got the promise from Glickenhaus, and for that matter from Bicolis, as, if you like, the smaller, the more minnow-like uh, potential hypercar entries. Uh, but the interesting thing in the background... There'll be more to be said on racer.com and on DSC in the coming days. Is serious manufacturers saying, we are really waiting now to find out what happens. Can they get this over the line? And more particularly, can you deliver these cars against the promised performance uh, levels for the budgets that are being promised? If they can, then we'll be in. And not uh, any proviso, we'll be in. And uh, I'm not, at the moment, going to give any of my friends and colleagues from the press room a march on who it is we've been speaking to. But trust me, these are very serious players indeed. So right now, uh, are they in a rush? Hell yes, they're in a rush. There were further talks going on, we believe, uh, during Test Day weekend. I'm sure that will go on through this week. Of course, they are desperately keen to get something announced for uh, Le Mans week. Indication... The, the best indication I've got is that we may well see some uh, announcements of real positivity to do with Hypercar during Le Mans week. I hope so, for one reason and one reason only. We need to move forward. People need, need certainty. They need certainty about what we're going to be seeing and what we can therefore market moving forward. The uh, professional teams in the background that either might want to adopt a customer Hypercar programme uh, or indeed, with a grandfathered LMP1 car, need to know the life of those packages as well. Uh, so we need something, and that something needs to be coming in no longer than about 10 days' time. Well, the next question from Mark Usher kind of follows on from that, because he, he asks on Twitter, um, given that the new hypercar regs are still up in the air, what are the chances of LMP1 regs in their current form continuing for the next couple of years? Well, look, what we already know, um, because we're briefed at Sebring, is that uh, obviously the current LMP1s, including the Toyota TSO50, continue into next season, starting in September 2019 and going on through to Le Mans in 2020. We know, too, that they are going to be grandfathered into the following season with the hypercars. That's a, quite an ask, actually. That's a big turn down of performance for the existing non-hybrid 
uh, prototypes of MP1 cars, but that is the intention. What we don't know is whether or not they're keeping it open or whether or not there's been a decision made that that might continue for another year. And that you and I have been discussing, I've been discussing with some of the current teams and for that matter, prospective LMP1 teams. And there are some um, that the timing of this winter-based uh, season and in particular the point at which you've got to commit to a 2019-2020 season, which was May the 21st, by the way, before the Le Mans 24 hours, uh, is making it very difficult to people to make a determination as to whether or not they can finance an LMP1 car uh, over what might end up being, I believe, at the very least, two years. But actually, I think that third year makes a massive difference if you think about the costs that are actually involved here. So that's been counting against a little bit of progress, I think, in the uh, in the privateer marketplace. It's made it more difficult for the likes of Rebellion, SMP, both of whom would like to sell customer cars. Uh, certainly for Ginetta, that, you know, as we've said in the show before, to just get to the stage where you can get those deals across the line. Uh, so what do we know? Two years, one of which will be grandfathered. What do I think? I'd be surprised at this stage if we didn't get to three. Rob Chalmers says, can we just ditch Car Car and just have P2 Pro and P2M? No. It's a bit like no. Asia Le Mans. No, no, no. I, I, you know, I, I think, and I'm sure I understand where Rob's coming from, and that, that is irritation at the lack of news. If this is deliverable and they've got teams of quality and the teams they're talking to are all of quality, um, then this is absolutely worth a spin uh, as being the answer for the next several years before we get into another technology cycle. Um, there is still a lot about the original concept of hypercar to be admired. I remain with concerns about how much they're going to have to dial up the, uh, the current performance uh, down to get there. Not because I'm particularly that bothered about a top-level prototype doing 3 minutes 30 around the Mon. I'm not that bothered about that. What I'm bothered about is the impact that that might have on the remaining classes in the field, and in particular P2, which is booming. Uh, you know, big numbers we've seen in the European Le Mans series. You're going to start to see significant numbers in the Asian Le Mans series as well. Very many of which, of course, will be the same cars effectively filling out their season. But uh, anything that risks the health of that really successful now supporting prototype series, to my mind, would be a bit of a fool's errand. Next one's from Right Turn Lover. He's, he's asking about success ballast. Just with the ACO flirting with success ballast in the WC next season, what do we actually know? Will it carry forward to the season finale, aka Le Mans, aka the only race of the season that General News mentions it? Or and do we expect the last three races before Le Mans to be after you contests? Uh, right, so I think the answer is I would expect it not to include Le Mans. I think that will be something where there will be a separate, uh, might even be a balanced performance. Who knows? My view is that this gives them the opportunity to start thinking about some of the principles of balanced performance. I'm certainly not an A-sayer about success ballast. You can't have it both ways, really, can you? You can't say, look, uh, it's outrageous, the Toyota's just pulling away from everybody at a ridiculous rate, and then poo-poo the one answer that's come to how it is you could deliver that for a reasonable cost. Because there are some things that people may think are simple, but actually turn out not to be, principally uh, because regulating the performance of a hybrid package is not as simple as you know reducing aero um, or reducing power that in terms of the hybrid system does have an effect on the efficiency of the braking system for instance so there's knock-on effects to be had what else do we know one line in the press release is what we know 
uh, it has to be said that the vast majority of the senior staff involved were nowhere to be seen uh, during the Le Mans test. I saw Pierre Fion a couple of times, did not see anybody from the WEC, certainly did not see Gerard Neveau, so one or two of his, mate, his senior staff, but the technical guys clearly very busy with the, scru- the business of scrutinising the cars ahead of test day, but there was absolutely no attempt whatsoever made to further explain the, I have to say, pretty helpful uh, note that we got on the OT. A little bit of irritation, I'm afraid, with the way that that note came out uh, by way of what was described by the one media organisation that ran it early as a press conference, otherwise known as presumably being asked into a room exclusively. Not smart, ACO. That's not the way to play. Or indeed, WEC, not the way to play with a well-established press pack that's trying to find positive things to say about your racing. Uh, but it's good to have it out there. It's good to see, in the words of Thierry Bouvet, uh, the technical man uh, at the ACO, their level of concern and irritation with the inability, principally because the TOTO is that good, the inability of their EOT process to act uh, to, to actually deal with the difference in performance between that machine and the, let's not forget, remarkably quick, uh, non-hybrid prototypes that form up the rest of the LMP1 class. Well, we hope we get some more transparency of that level heading into next week. Don't I we? think they have to. I think you know the the answer is you know that you, you you can't not communicate forever, and if you do hold back from communicating general principles and then from there the detail, I'm afraid that breeds suspicion and cynicism. And I would hope they've learned that lesson. We've got smoke from Puppy Eight Four One back again for some more questions. He's on Twitter, he asks, the Ginetta G60 for the 2019-20 season are being entered under the Team LNT banner. As this makes it essentially a factory entry if they end up running the cars, has the policy on no OEMs and LMP1LB been changed, and will we see a manufacturer title battle between Toyota and Ginetta? Um, I think the answer is so. First and foremost, first to explain, uh, they may well have initially been entered under Team LNT, um, whether or not that ends up being the entry name when we uh, see the entry for the WEC announced, um, I think probably either Wednesday or Friday at the Le Mans 24 Hours, remains to be seen. Um, there is a window of opportunity to make a change in between what you've actually entered them under and what the final entry is. But even if they're not, Team LNT is not Janetta. Team LNT is the team that used to run. TVRs, um, Panos, etc., etc. Um, they've not often run Genetta's actually in the P3, 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 I think, recently. Uh, and the other thing to say is that fundamentally, Genetta does not have a factory race team at all in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, that's been one of the areas of debate for those of us that have been along and seen uh, the testing for the LMP1 car. It's been run by some very able, enthusiastic guys whose day job is building Genetta. Uh, race and road cars but make no mistake part of the game at the moment is to find the commercial solution that will underpin two car effort for the full 2019-2020 WEC and that's likely to come from a race team sponsorship and or drivers bringing some budget for some of those six seats Um, but beyond that who is going to run those cars whether or not it's under Team LNT, I think you can be guaranteed that it will not be regarded as being a factory team at this point. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, the vagaries, rather, not the vagaries, the specifics, the specifics rather, 
there of an FI World Endurance uh, FI World Championship make it quite difficult to make a variety of changes during a season, and one of them is the team name. Next question is from Stephen Gate on Twitter, and he's going back to 2015. He asks, "Was the real reason Mark Janet was dropped out of Nissan's Le Mans lineup in 2015 the same as the official line, which was lack of track time in the car due to his fright commitments?" He ended up being replaced by somebody even less. Um, I suspect the answer is not. Uh, I think Mark had struggled in testing. Whether or not he was particularly happy with his performance or the car's performance. But uh, diplomatic language, I suspect, used there. I, I will say, I think Mark is an exceptional race driver, but I think there's reason to wonder whether or not he actually was at the height of his powers in the last couple of years after a substantial shunt. Um, I'm not sure that Mark was quite the driver that he had been even a, a couple of years earlier. It's not to say uh, anything derogatory at all uh, there. I think either he had not performed in testing or he felt that the car was not going to be at a level he was going to be happy to drive, um, which, let's face it, with the benefit of hindsight, you wouldn't be wrong, would he? Um, we would say, by the way, on the subject of the NSM GTRLM, we talked last week's show about the Twitter uh, debate about it. I bumped into Ricardo de Villa in the uh, the Le Mans paddock. We'll get him on inside the sports car paddock at some point. Oh, that'd be great. And he was a gr- just great fun. Great fun. Mm. And echoed a lot of the thoughts that we were kind of offering um, last week, Stephen, around the difference between opinion and fact. Uh, we'll get a bit of fact from Ricardo at some point. I think there's a great book yeah. to be written there. Yeah, well, the difference between opinion and fact was literally the first conversation that me and you had in a pressure moment. It, most, it most certainly was. <laughs> Go for it. What's next? Um, Ryan, Ryan Terpster on Twitter. Says, MP always talks about Felipe Nasser being on the radar for IndyCar teams. What about Premier Seats and the WC? Uh, well, he, of course, has driven an LMP2. Um, he filled the seats in Settler of Courses, Delara, for a year, with Andrea Beliki having suffered, uh, I think, a back injury and being out for a while, and was remarkably rapid. So, you know, I'm sure he would be on the radar for teams. I think what you've got to look at, though, is just exactly what is available commercially. There might well be some seats where he could be potentially in there moving forward but it's a matter of what does Felipe bring with him in terms of a commercial package. Does he bring money, or do you need to find somebody that will pay, I've no doubt, um, something a little better than a living wage? And why shouldn't he? Um, but uh, he is on the radar, without a shadow of a doubt. He's known to be uh, something of a hot shoe, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, but no sign at the moment that we'll see Felipe joining the WC grid anytime soon. And certainly with somebody I'd like to see in a P1 car. It'd be interesting. I think you know, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, uh, you know... There are one or two drivers that when you see their name appear on an entry list, you kind of think, I'm not sure how that's going to work. I have to say, um, you know, I've known young Thomas Laurent for, well, is it four years now? Um, and he continues to impress. It is no surprise to me whatsoever that he's been picked up um, for the uh, test and reserve driver role at Toyota. And I can absolutely assure you that we, it won't be the last we see of him uh, in a prototype, um, you know, whilst he's kept fresh just in case he's required. And we might just give a little bit of a teaser as to where that's going to be because we're fully well aware where young Mr. Laurent will be uh, will be driving in the 2019-2020 FIA World Endurance Championship. It won't be for Rebellion. Mm. Michael Metro ninety seven on Twitter says, "That's a, funny, that's a, a brilliant surname, by Michael, the way. Michael Metro. <laughs> um, 
How worried should Corvette fans be considering they were fastest in the GTE Pro Le Mans test day and thus the most vulnerable to BOP? Porsche was about two seconds slower than last year despite only getting a two kilogram weight increase and most cars were slower. Uh, most cars across the board were slow despite the fact there was a, 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 an ACO press release out last night that said times were faster than last year that's an absolute falsehood they weren't um, so whether or not that's lost in translation or maybe they meant the fact that because they put out a thing saying that Stoffel Van Dorn was, was fastest over the speed trap yes fastest ever yeah, WC yeah. History, something that's like not, that that's not, that's not working for me I no. just think it's a cock up <laughs> uh, but no uh, but I think the answer here is well it presumably shows that Corvette have got confidence in the process. Good luck to them. 20th uh, year as the factory team uh, coming along with the, we expect the Le Mans Swan Song for the glorious C7R. I just hope we can break that cycle of you go quick in testing or at Spa and effectively someone hitches up a caravan on the back. Um, that's if, Frankly, if the ACO do do that, then I think that's just really short-sighted. It's just dumbs down just about everything it dumbs down what we'll see in pre-practice it dumbs down what we'll see in qualifying and then you get to the ridiculous situation where people go quicker in the race well we know that's not the real thing um and i hope they're smarter than that should they be worried no come on they're going to come out they're going to sound glorious and you know with very few exceptions uh, corvettes run pretty reliably and quickly at the Le Mans 24 hours 20th anniversary is it their turn well you know there's a fair chance where are you at the moment on GTU Pro on the cynicometer? In terms, because we've had 2016, which was really one-sided. 2017 was absolutely superb. 2018 was somewhere in between, but with the car that got a massive advantage yeah. from the safety car. Yeah. Where do you think we are heading into this year's race overall? I'll tell you what. I hope we don't get. I hope we don't get silliness around Ford and BMW. Um, I, I will admit to being not particularly impressed with the absolute lack of mention um, of the two manufacturers who decided to step away uh, in official communications. Uh, my view is, particularly with Ford, um, that they deserve the respect and you know, they've been with, here with a multi-year programme. They've delivered on exactly what they said they'd deliver on and just made the decision they're not going to extend it rather than cancel it. Um, it's, I think, the, the wording that would be smart and actually I'd like to see a bit of a change in tone and you know thanks for their uh, efforts and they'd be very welcome back if and when they can find an opportunity to do so you know could they be on that list for hypercar they could be do I expect it to be the case it would be a surprise to me but I don't think any sense of peak I mean that with an IQUE rather than an EAK any sense of peak being shown by um, the powers that be is helpful if you're trying to persuade a manufacturer to spend tens of millions of euros. Another question from Smoking Puppy 041 on GTE. It says, it appears to be in a current state of crisis with only six cars apiece across um, the pro classes uh, in WC and IMSA. What do you think would be the solution here other than sorting out hypercar? Could a bigger distinction between GTE and GT3 cars be an important place to start? Uh, first and foremost, it's not a crisis. It's six cars. Now, that, that I'm going to get, get I present to the uh, the assembled masses this thought. Was it a crisis in LMP1H when we had six cars? No, it was absolutely awesome. There's nothing to say that if balance of performance is correct, and it, for the most part, has been, that we couldn't have 
very good six-car races. I'll tell you as well that I believe that one of the things that's under discussion is that uh, I think you're going to find that the factory teams are going to be welcomed if they want to bring on a race-by-race basis a third car. I think that would be something which would be welcomed by the race organisers, or the championship organisers. As those of you who are sensible enough to mainline dailysportscar.com would have realised, we're already looking at somewhere, I think, kind of in the 32 to 35 car range for a full season entry for the FIWC. Uh, with a lot of very quick GTM cars, with a lot of very quick GTM drivers aboard some of those cars. So could there, could there be a bit of kind of playing around there with whatever else gets uh, mixed in? Remember, in the Manufacturers' Championship, if you register your privateer teams, they count um, for Manufacturers' Championship points. Uh, it is the first two cars registered for the Manufacturers' Championship uh, in the overall order that score the points in the manufacturer's championship so if, if you have a Porsche for instance that has a problem early on and doesn't quite make it back up the field but let's say the number 77 uh, Dempsey Proton car has a really good race and finishes ahead of a couple of the Aston Martins then all of a sudden it just changes the feel of things what that means of course is there is more chance of the privateer entries actually helping the manufacturers in the manufacturers championship because there's a shorter list of pro cars that they need to feature amongst so um look am i disappointed of course i'm disappointed i love the variety i love the depth it's not a disaster it would be a disaster if that had meant that we dipped below some kind of notional um well, it's not a notion, it's an actual red line in terms of the overall numbers for the championship. But at the moment, I'm looking at probably, well, certainly in terms of what has been entered, whether or not we see those cars, we have to wait till September. But uh, 9p1 uh, cars, I think it's going to be 8p2 cars. Yes to 6 uh, GTE Pro cars. And I think we're looking into double figures for GTE AM cars, all of which will be relatively new machines with Aston Martin, with uh, Ferrari and with Porsche uh, actually represented, um, are not going to be one of those ones that is just utterly cynical and says it's a disaster. It's not great. It's not the best news. It's part of that cycle again. We suck it and see. And we push on with a 30-plus car grid for the FI World Insurance Championship. It's not always been the case we've had 30-plus cars, actually, in the past. Uh, 26 and 28, as I remember, a couple of years back. Mm, and, this, and there have been years where Pro wasn't even that big. Indeed, absolutely. Um, next up is Ryan Tupcher again on Twitter. He says, I experienced Le Mans at night during the iRacing 24 hours of Le Mans. I looked at on-board footage from Alonso. It seems odd they don't do a better job of getting some of the lighting on the first push curve and the kink before Indy. Do drivers complain about the lighting at night at Le Mans? Nah. I think they love it, don't they? Yeah. They love the challenge. Yeah, I mean, you know, you either got you know, it's, it's either lit or it's barely lit or it's dark, and you will get drivers coming back and say it really is dark out there. But you know what? It, it is, this is not a challenge to maintain you know, full daylight pace at all times. You do what you can to do that. This is a challenge against the conditions. It, you, you're, you're not beating the lap; you're beating the track. And the track gets wet, the track gets dry, the track gets windy, the track gets uh, gets dark, and the track gets into low sun uh, at you know at dawn and at dusk. 
And so, no, I, I don't think I've ever heard a complaint about lighting at the Mon. I'd be distressed yeah. if it did. But do you think? I think you hear sort of almost the opposite. Guys like Lawrence Vantoy, who are outspoken in saying they don't like some of the more recent changes to the circuit yeah. and the way it's you know changed the safety aspect, the Porsche curves. He doesn't think that, that they're any better than they used to be yeah. with all the changes. And I think lighting's a part of that. And I think a lot of drivers would prefer to race in pitch black darkness than at somewhere like Daytona where it's dark but lit so that you can basically see everything anyway. I think as well it's, um, you know, you're not going to be under any illusions unless there's a car out there that's in trouble that you're catching a car. You you can pick up the lights of these cars very easily at night from the rear and from the front, of course. Um, But don't underestimate the joy that these guys get from the challenge, the challenge of racing these things consistently. And you know we said before consistency here across you know these kind of uh, these kind of lap times is measured in tenths. Um, so don't underestimate that. No, no, honestly, lighting not an issue. We can pick the cars out uh, from the side with the um, the, the side panels. Um, the, the crowds can pick the cars out from the side um, with uh, with their kind of various aids at their disposal. Uh, I don't think there's very many drivers struggling out there and I'll be blunt if they were they've got no place being in the car there and don't underestimate as well how much better the headlighting has become on some of the prototypes especially worryingly so at times remember, the, remember the, the infographic do you remember that one that Audi did where they showed the old I think it was like was it the R10 and the R18 next to each other from a from a bird's eye view yeah and the difference in the lighting oh, it's laser it was light like now. twice the length it's, it's, it's yeah. I think the, you know there's a lot of things that have actually carried carried on forward here. There will be some drivers that will choose to do very little at night or nothing at night, and that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, I mean, you, know, you get older, your night vision begins to go a little. Mine certainly is is nowhere near what it used to be ten years ago. Um, but then again, I'm not going to strap myself into a 650 horsepower car and throw myself around a circuit in the middle of the night because I've got far more sense than that. Um, but it's it's not an issue perfectly fair question but for me that's one of the reasons why actually having night racing in all sorts of different situations is special do it under the lights at Bahrain for instance the cars look amazing Mm -hmm. but it's not really a proper night race next up is Rob Horn on Twitter he says what's the connection between SMP racing and the GTE Pro of course Ferraris is it just a sponsor on the car is it technology it's probably a simple answer, but I've just wondered. It is at this stage a simple answer that uh, it's it is a commercial sponsorship deal. There have been links between SMP Racing and uh, AF Corsa historically. There's been GT cars that have used some of their technical um, technical now, so that continues. I think it's AF Corsa that look after the Blancpain cars. Mm. Uh, SMP Racing successful LMP2 program back in. The middle of the decade was run out of the AF Corsa garage as well. But on the GTE Pro cars, it is indeed simply a sponsorship. It's a bit like Red Bull in a sense, isn't it? Where they've got their own team, but you kind of see the logos on random yeah, but like sports. But only they're not a bank, Stephen. I know. I know. Yeah, they, they make some horribly sugary awfulness <laughs> in tins, whereas banks are just horribly awful. <laughs> Tiger of 380 on WC Reddit says, seeing the gap between the Toyotas and the privateers, um, can the ACO change the EOT this late in the game? If they can, will they? Well, I think the answer is they can. Is it going to make much of a difference? The answer is not a lot. I do think uh, everybody's got more to come. 
Um, I think I said to you as we led into the week, I'm expecting to see something a little bit special from one or two of the uh, the non-hybrid cars. I think they, they've they certainly not got as much more to come as the Totus. We know they have because we've seen it. But I think it, that we could have some interesting moments here. Uh, the theory is that on a clear lap, they shouldn't be very far apart at all. And that's simply because of the distances that the hybrids have got to lift and coast here. If they've got the figures correct for uh, the uh, for the non-hybrids, then the lift and coast uh, need for the non-hybrids will be gone. Mm. Uh, let's wait and see how that works out. In reality, what they've also acknowledged, by the way, with that very same press release about EOT is... In certain circumstances, it's just impossible to do that because the inherent sophistication and the inherent advantage with a four-wheel drive hybrid platform. Let's also not forget um, what was quite interesting about the second race at Spa in the WC season that we've had is the difference in the SMP car at the same circuit a year on yeah. in qualifying. And I think we're going to see a similar thing at Le Mans for SMP where the, the car's just developed and we're rebellion. They've got the new era kit to look forward Well, to. they've tried two different iterations of the era kit, which is going to be interesting. They've tried both uh, iterations of the, of the low-drag aero uh, at Le Mans on the test day. So it'll be interesting to find out what exactly the game is going to be at rebellion. They sort of seem... I don't want to say lost, but unsure... They've got the development Gibson engine, about 20 horsepower up, by the way, on the engines that you'll see in both the Dragon Speed and the uh, Bicolis cars. But So they've got, they've got some development uh, there, but they clearly have done some aero work. Testing it back-to-back uh, in similar conditions is probably quite smart. You can see in real-world conditions what the gain's been. Next up is MBO on WC Reddit. It says, how likely is a number nine Toyota entry at Le Mans next year with Alonso, Laurent and Davidson? Is this something that would be a net gain, brackets more competition for a win, or net loss being a podium lockout for the race? For me, I'd like to see Alonso back against increased competition. Uh, no chance, I think is the answer. It's a, This is definitely a kind of uh, swan song for the TSO 50. Uh, and Davidson, by the way, is out of contract at Toyota um, after Le Mans, I believe, but it might be the. But you, we already seen um, it's going to be in a full season uh, Dragon Speed. Uh, sorry, not Dragon Speed effort. Sorry, Jota Sport effort in LMP2. Thomas Laurent, we'll wait and see. He's obviously the new uh, reserve driver there. Fernando Alonso, who knows? I mean, look, how many times have we been to Le Mans and you know we talked with Loic Duval and uh, the dramas that befell him and I mean Marchionet brought back into the field. Uh, into the uh, fray for uh, for Audi with uh, Oliver Turvey being flown out to fill his notional seat for Jota Sport. Things can happen. Do I expect them to get a budget for a third car? No. Uh, that would be the end of programme for that car, and I think at that stage, if we get where, uh, where Toyota wants us to get to, it'll all be up about the new car. Mm. Uh, I would like to see them next year in the far west of that car though. I remember you saying recently to me, I'd love to see them like Japanese it up in livery terms, make it like oh, a yeah. good smile super GT car, something to mark the end of that it car's be, career. I, I, you know, it would be great to see them do something next year, in fact, with deliveries. I think that's one of the things that was a big plus, and I'm sure the questions later about some of the liveries we've got there uh, on the Le Mans grid this year, particularly with the GT cars. Um, bit more of that would be lovely actually and certainly from Toyota it would be great for them to do something a little bit special for the odd race Tom Bender on Facebook says 
With BMW withdrawing from the WC, do you guys think it's possible we'll see RLLs M8 at the 24 Hours of Le Mans next year, or is BMW no longer interested in Le Mans? Uh, I think BMW are very interested in Le Mans, whether or not the ACO see it quite that way <laughs> uh, might be a, a very interesting moment. I think there is a very big difference between uh, a team like Corvette Racing with decades of loyalty to the race, and okay, they've stepped up and done a couple of the other races as well this year, and a manufacturer that's been fairly rude about the WC uh, and has stepped away after a single year, then wanting to step in for the biggest race. I'm guessing that if they have the numbers they had this year, BMW might be unlucky. Mm. James Counter on Facebook says, what happens with tyre allocation for the great race? Are there limits on tyres during qualifying or only for the race? You know what? I don't know, is the honest answer. It's Of course, it's a very odd um, race week, if you like. We've got those uh, the, the four track sessions, three of which are timed qualifying. Um, so the answer is, I don't know. Uh, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I will find out, and we'll put an adjunct in at the end of this one. Another one from James Counter on Facebook. It says, Graham, you spoke about the potential for the WC to become no more in the future. For those of us who are relatively new sports car fans and haven't seen a change at the very top of the sports car world, what do you think this would look like? Well, the, the key to it is this. Uh, is, we talked about this on the way back We did. Is a, an FIA World Championship sustainable if you have very few manufacturer entries? I think the answer is increasingly that would be difficult. So a lot depends on hypercar, uh, which would bring with it manufacturer entries in the top class. Do I see anybody coming anytime soon to bolster the GTE Pro numbers? No, I don't. I think there are some possibilities, but I think they have to go under the possible, not probable. And they're very unlikely, by the way, to do that until the situations with both Hypercar and, for that matter, DPI 2.0 are sorted out. So until those regulations are there and um, and uh, available, I think it's unlikely anybody's going to be committing to a current uh, formula uh, that hasn't already. Uh, what would it look like? Uh, well, certainly the Le Mans 24 Hours is not going anywhere, anywhere fast. The, the Continental Series, and by that I mean the European Le Mans Series, the Asian Le Mans Series, which is looking like it's storming towards um, really sustainable numbers now. And for that matter, and I'm not saying this to be controversial, IMSA is a North American Continental Series. They're all in really good health. So there is every potential, um, if a World Endurance Championship prospect went away, to build a series within a series, uh, or a series across other series, a little like the North American Endurance Championship picks off the major uh, races in North America. Uh, There was nothing to say that you couldn't do something as we've had before with the Intercontinental Le Mans Cup, where some of those races were overlaid on existing races in the European Le Mans series, for instance, or the Le Mans series back when, in addition to which you had uh, a couple of races as fly, flyways, Fuji, uh, for instance, not Fuji, we had um, uh, Zuhai, for instance, uh, Okayama had one of those rounds. Uh, there's nothing to stop that kind of prospect. Do I, th- do I believe that if the WEC didn't carry on, it would mean the end of long-haul uh, international sports car racing I really don't it might be a little less of it but I really don't I think if there's a marketing reason to do it they'll do it 
Mm. I, I think with with the ILMC format, it could be quite difficult actually um, going forward on the basis that it would be hard to squeeze in an extra fifteen or twenty cars in some of these grids like the LMS. Uh, well, yeah, I think yeah. So, but you know, it may well be that you potentially even get there to the point where there might be an LMS race if they did it that way. That might be uh, as with IMSA you have to dictate which classes are going to do which races. Nothing to say, for instance, that the LMS at that stage couldn't take a seventh race um, for, you know, uh, ILMC and, you know, add in the GTs and the LMP2s, but the LMP3s have their own race. There's all sorts of options. Am I saying that's what's going to happen? 100% no, I'm not. But what I'd say is this. If the WC went away, in exactly the same way as I've just said with the cyclical nature of the GTE Pro uh, pack, you know, is it a disaster? It's a disappointment, not a disaster, and it absolutely does not mean there's a lack of um, interest in international sports car racing. I actually happen to think it's seldom been higher. Matthew Guy Richard on Facebook says, "I was expecting to see a Michelin Chardin MP2 car at the top of the timings at Le Mans. Any word on this, Graham?" Uh, yeah, what they've done is they've got some Birmingham sauce and they put, poured them all over the... No, I think the answer was it was a bit of a lottery. And uh, I think as it got a little cooler later in the day, the Dunlops seemed to switch on a little bit more. It certainly looked to me as if the Michelins were stronger uh, when we were in the, uh, the real heat of the day. As things started to cool down just a little, the Dunlops came back in. Um, we're expecting it to be a lot cooler during race week. We are. We? It's going to it's be... It's rainy. It's going to be... Although that rain forecast has gone away a little bit, so which is good news. Um, it's going to be really close, and I think you know, I think like you, um, it's it's another part of that P two battle that warrants a lot more attention. We do love a good tyre war. Mm. And what we've got now is Michelin's best shot at these regulations versus Dunlop's best shot at these regulations, and it's basically just have at you. You know, it is basically you know two great big warriors exchanging hammer blows. Um, and doing that with some really convincing teams. Uh, you know, for me, um, in the Dunlop uh, scheme of things, they've probably got fewer cars than they've been used to, uh, but they've been trying to pick up quality customers. Michelin have got some very convincing customers indeed uh, this year. Uh, Dunlop, slightly on the back foot in terms of the numbers game for uh, cars and teams you would expect to be up and duking it out for podiums, but they're really good at Le Mans Dunlop have been for many years in uh, LMP2 they will not take a challenge from Michelin lightly and it's great to see those rivalries coming to the fore Matthew also asks any word on what drills the teams were going through at Le Mans test day to give us any idea um, of what these times possibly mean uh, the answer is not a lot a lot of tyre testing going on without a shadow of a doubt everybody's looking at tyre mileage fuel mileage uh, remember they'll know most things because most of the teams have been here before and in fact most of the teams have been here this season in the case of WC teams but the one unknown here were those new Michelin and Dunlop tyres so a lot of the time in LMP2 I would suspect were spent doing that a couple of minor changes to the circuit to, to get your heads around but the other major thing and uh, you know <laughs> Anybody that's been around Le Mans for a while will understand the reasoning behind this. I think it's 33 or 34 rookies this year mm. had to get laps in, and it takes time. You know, and, you know, long, yeah. Absolutely, and particularly when you've got, as we did have, mercifully no really major incidents, but a lot of 
drills from race control, but plus minor incidents, putting in slow zones, um, putting in full course yellows, putting in safety cars. That takes time away from getting the laps in that those rookies need. And 33, 34 drivers getting, I think, 10 laps each. Um, that's, that takes a chunk of time. Josh um, Ridgian. Ridgian? Uh, you can, yep, you can fully run some of that one. I apologise. <laughs> Josh Ridgian, I'm going to go with, on Facebook, says, which privateer LMP1 do you think will end up on the podium with Toyota at the moment? Good question. You, you'd have to say, in terms of the level of experience that they've had doing this, you've got to say that, uh, that Rebellion would have to be the favourites to do that. That said... Uh, I think what we've seen in just recent months, if they can keep the thing on the grey stuff, the SMP racing BR1 with the AER is looking more and more convincing as time goes on. I think it's the quicker car, um, ultimately quicker than the Rebellion. Uh, but of the two two-car teams, for me, the experience at Rebellion, the engineering know-how that Orica bring and Bart Hayden and his... Uh, remaining team at uh, Rebellion Racing uh, and the strength and depth of their driver lineup is pretty convincing stuff. Beyond that, by Collis, probably not actually. Their brand new chassis was there, it looked a very new chassis, uh, it looks a very different car actually now. Uh, but I don't see that challenging remotely on pace if they have a clean race, and I hope they do. Um, you know, you see them duking it out probably with the upper levels of the LMP2 grid, and then you've got Dragon Speed. Um, they've had a horrible time with that car a truly horrible time with that car and they had a few more problems again with the car at the test day but they are a team that knows how to get a car around cleanly you know, they are a team let's not forget that at the start of this year they won they are I think have a unique record they've won races this year in IMSA in ELMS and in the FI World Insurance Championship in LMP2 if they can replicate that any kind of that kind of form uh, in terms of keeping their cars fast and reliable, then who knows what the number 10 car might do. For me, uh, on form, probably the number three rebellion. Mm. I, I would just like to see certainly the two SMPs, but all three of the BR1s in the field have a, as clean a race as possible because I think for SMP as well, they've just had too many races where they haven't been able to get both cars to the finish or keep both cars out of the barriers. Um, and they've got the driver lineups to be able to do it, haven't they? It's just uh, yeah, you know, well, at, the very, at the very least, the um, the the privateer prototype pack is a lot closer to each other than we've seen them, and they are getting closer without a shadow of a doubt to the uh, to the Toyotas. I'm not predicting any shocks, but I just think there might be a couple of surprises to be sprung here. If you can get one of those cars with a clear lap with someone like Stoffel van Dorn, by the way, first man in the WEC history, tipped 350 kilometres an hour in any session at that test day. Um, so it's never been done. And that was on his way to the freight stand. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, they realised they'd just opened a new um, new jar of mayo and wanted the first spoonful on his freight. But uh, 350 kilometres an hour, is that's motoring. And if they can hook it up, do I think they can get on the front row? Probably not. But you know what? Toyota could have a problem, could have a problem in qualifying too. Or just take it easy. Or yeah. Unlikely. I think they'll want to lock out the front row. I think they'll want utter domination without a shadow of a doubt and give themselves uh, you know, a good run to, um, to the start of the race at least. 
but I'm not counting out that one of those uh, one or two of those um, privateer cars might get closer than possibly people think that they could because mm, it might be their only chance to grab a headline really uh, yeah you know and uh, ultimately it's going to be about whether or not you get a clear lap as well as having the ability to do it Nate Detweiler on Facebook is the final question wow. from, from the section um, this is Graham random thought while dri- driving home today if a driver were to miss pit road at Le Mans and run out of fuel on the way back round, could the team run a can of fuel out to the car? I seem to remember when the Delta Wing got punted at Le Mans, the team took tools to the driver so he could attempt to get the car drive ball. Also, great job by you and Stephen in Marshall's absence. Keep it up. No, I think you've been terrible, actually. But uh, no. Well, no, actually, oh, sorry, actually, he just said you. He said he didn't mention you. He didn't mention you. No. Quite right, too. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, it's been a joy having, having you here for this. Uh, the answer is you're not allowed to take tools, and they didn't for Delta Wing. There is a small toolkit actually strapped inside the car. Uh, what they did do was to shout instructions to Matiyama Sen. Um, there have been all sorts of uh, stories back in the day. No, you are not allowed external assistance. That means you are not, by regulation, allowed tools um, or materials, and certainly not fuel. Although I do remember astoundingly back in the day uh, I'm trying to remember exactly who it was it might have been one of the TVRs back in the day where you, you realise you're not allowed to go very much further I think it's 10 metres from the car and about 28 metres from the car what did he find in the undergrowth but a 5 litre jerry can yeah it's, it's funny that isn't it and we were in a conversation in a race truck talking about this weren't we we were and we did have somebody I won't say said it's remarkable how many cans of fuel there are in the forest <laughs> <laughs> but um, it is basically game over if assistance can't be rendered and you know I guess it depends on whether the official uh, closest to the car sort of looks the other way you don't take frankly I wouldn't want to be it's kind of, I wouldn't want to be pouring fuel into a race car in the dark with everything as hot as it is I yeah, think that no, would be neither. not a smart move um, but no you're not allowed uh that kind of thing. I mean, all sorts of things. Spanners have been found under bushes. Uh, I mean, you know, tie wraps, would you believe? Jacks. As well? Jacks. I mean, all <laughs> sorts of pretty heavy machinery. We've not got quite to the st- uh, stage where there's... New sets of tyres. Yeah. Absolutely. Not quite got to the stage where someone's got an inspection pit and a lift, but I'm sure at some point <laughs> someone make a liar off me. But uh, the idea is that you are not allowed external assistance. What you will see very many cars uh, will have a small toolkit... The drivers are instructed on things like, for instance, how to remove the engine cover, which is not the work of a moment for some of these cars, let's not forget. Um, and they'll often carry a mobile phone. Mm. Uh, so there's, I mean, I can remember, I think it was one of the factory Nissans some years ago with um, a problem down at Mulzan Corner, and there's a highly animated Japanese guy carrying a little Nokia, uh, waving his arms about, trying to get uh, through uh, on the mobile phone network. But... No, generally speaking, if you're out, you're out. And um, if you think that's wrong, uh, just next time you see Frank Beeler, just ask him, Frank Beeler, what went wrong? (laughs) Next up, we've got the general section. And we've got Hubcap Motors with the first question on WC Reddit. It says, now that hybrid technology has existed in mass-produced road cars for two decades, why has it been so difficult even for a mild hybrid powertrain to become adopted in high-level sports car racing. It's understandable that not everyone can support incredibly advanced systems like we see in the TSO 50, yet at the same time, the APR Racing Super GT t- team have proven that hybridisation can be done on a privateer budget. Typically, we see automotive technology trickle down from street cars to race cars, 
But strangely, this technology seems to be trickling up from street cars to race cars in this instance. That's a brilliant question. And I think a lot of it... Uh, I get, well, uh, let me relay a couple of conversations back to you. You've had this conversation some years ago now with Stefan Rattel about hybridisation. Flatly refused to even consider the possibility. I think that comes from experience of having factory money coming into what was a successful race series, BPR, and destroying it... Uh, albeit destroying it in a spectacular fashion with some spectacular cars but I think it is now the fact that you've got racing is so spec almost or at least so templated that um, trying to roll out something as radical as a different powertrain system in GT racing would take such a level of confluence of 11 or 12 manufacturers or create so much more of an issue for a balance of performance that is very well developed and they've got that nailed down that I just think they're trying to see off what I believe is the inevitable for as long as possible. Are they discussing in the background? I have nothing to base this on but I'd be staggered if they weren't. Mm. Staggered if they weren't uh, talking about it in the background. Um, As for uh, the kind of spec systems in LMP1 well, I can give you a bit of background from a leading race engineer at the time, back uh, when we had the Rebellion R1 car. And we were talking about exactly this, whether or not a bolt-on hybrid system uh, might make a difference. And talking to someone who knew his onions uh, at that stage, the answer that I was given there is no. Even at that point, a bolt-on competition standard uh, hybrid system with you know all the safety that's required for that, as well as the... Uh, electrical uh, capability uh, would simply be uh, you know, another order of magnitude of, of expense for those teams. Have things moved on? I think yes they have um, clearly with hypercar coming along the default system for hypercar is hybrid although we believe that the regulations will allow a non-hybrid solution now but the default that solution is hybrid will it come to GT racing? There's every reason why it should. I'm not at home, by the way, to the kind of, you know, hybrid is yesterday's technology, hybrid is, you know, is irrelevant. Bullshit is that is my answer to that one. You know, every um, major manufacturer on the planet has either got full electric or hybrid cars they are selling now uh, through their main dealers. It's not like we're all driving hybrids, is it? Uh, and that's not the, to that point. But, but that's, and that's the reason to market it, because if that's where you're going to find your relevance, if that's where you're going to find your regulatory cover, if that's where you're going to find your profit, then it is exactly what they want to be marketing right now. Not least with the kind of body armour against the criticism that parts of the industry have co- correctly had for their behaviour and emissions to this point. It is a very relevant technology. It will stay relevant for many years to come. There are lots of different ways in which you can provide a hybrid solution. Um, as for the, the kind of the question, do I think they're slow to the party? Yes, I think that's more um, a mark of how successful the formulae have been that have got us to where we are today. Is there an opportunity with something like GTE Pro to potentially advance that? Possibly. But I'm not here sitting with the figures at my disposal. Um, you know, could we get to the stage where GTE uh, and GT3 are defined by maybe that more than anything else? We could. Uh, what will change things uh, in terms of the numbers game is if there becomes a clamour for this in GT3. 
because mm-hmm. there you are talking about many more manufacturers, vastly more cars in the marketplace, and to do that requires a strong amount of project management and uh, a time frame to be managed across probably two to three years of introducing a completely different formula. It's going to be really interesting to see how someone like SRO does handle that. How, yeah. how much longer do you reckon these GT3 cars have got being wheeled out in their current current form without hybrids? Well, I think, you know, you've already seen some of the, the manufacturers, no doubt, have had that debate with them. I'm sure Honda did when they came forward with the NSX, which is not available as a road car without a hybrid, remember. The only place it exists uh, as a non-hybrid is in GT racing. But there's nothing really unusual about uh, about that. Take away from the fact that there's a hybrid system, look at the uh, the cars that we've got racing in GT3 that are not available or only available as a special edition as a rear-wheel drive car. Mm-hmm. Their the default setting is a four-wheel drive car. So it's not unusual for um, race cars, and particularly the current templated regulated race cars, to have their wings clipped a little um, for... You know, for compliance with a set of regulations, I see that as being no real difference. Actually, you know, you, you start to introduce um, hybrid systems. Why wouldn't you actually allow them a four-wheel drive as well? It's just it's more difficult to balance. That's all. So there's another interesting um, debate, surely, to be had about the fact that it's not just the manufacturers that we've got to look out on this. It's the customer teams as well, and specifically the, the sort of main money men behind some of these efforts in GT3 is how many of them do want to race these cars with hybrids in? Because if you remember that conversation you have with Alfonso from Racing Engineering, and he said one of the key reasons for moving to P2 at the time... Excuse the, excuse the squeaky chair, by the way. Yeah. It, one of the key reasons for moving away from want to hybrids. He didn't want, and he wanted something loud and something you know a bit more pure. And there are going to be some of these older guys who are racing GT cars get a kick out of the fact that they are a bit old school uh, yeah I think so but I think increasingly that will that will ebb away I think the other thing to say is anybody that's had the opportunity to experience the performance of a truly cutting edge uh, performance hybrid or full electric car would understand that other than the noise you're not compromising if anything it's another world again mm. um, you know I've had a passenger ride in one I've driven uh, another, and they are a completely different league. I mean, you know, okay, it is a completely different league again. But at this bar test that you and I attended, and we got the opportunity to see, you know, close quarters repeatedly, the uh, the Toyota TSO fifty firing out the pit lane. You know, we see it on TV all the time, but actually standing there and watching it, experiencing it, is another world. And, and it wasn't just us either. It was all these engineers, you know, mechanics, we had drivers, there, really Porsche expert, there. But, but everyone would stop and look at it. Stop and look at it. And it was the moment when one of our colleagues actually said, and, and here's the point where you realise one of the hidden advantages, by the way, that the Toyota has, is just cranking an engine. That's a second and a half. Even if it fires on the first go, they don't have to crank the engine. They just press the go button. It's off, yeah. It's amazing. Second and a half right there. Brian Kahn on Facebook says, why don't manufacturers just demand rules that allow them and their customers to race their cars worldwide? Blancpain's are doing a pretty good job of this with GT3 and its expansion to America. Since the sanctioning bodies can't see the benefit they'd all receive from such rules, shouldn't manufacturers just come out and demand it? Uh, I think at times they have. I mean, we've come pretty close uh, things like confluence of the GT and GT3 rules in the recent past, but that um, had a bit of a divided rule going on there. Um, there's certainly been a drive from a number of manufacturers to have a unified rule book. The problem is delivering it. And the problem is that you've got 
two or three things going on at the same time. You've got sanctioning bodies that want to ensure that they keep control of their product and they don't allow uh, costs to escalate or influence from one manufacturer to escalate to the point where it over, overrules everybody else's interests. You've got those manufacturers that have got a global interest. You've got manufacturers that maybe have a regional interest. And you put five of these manufacturers in a room and you're going to get 55 different answers as to what it is they actually want. It's a really difficult process. And you know, seldom been seen into sharper focus than the debate we've had over what feels like decades, but has actually been just over a year, um, about hypercar. Uh, and it needs to be resolved at some point. Somebody needs to make a determination. We either can deliver this, and you, as being the party that's in the room that's making this difficult, are not welcome at the table, or we can't deliver this, and we need a plan B. For me, that's where motorsport has been pretty poor. This is not directed at the ACO, the WEC. Motorsport as a whole has been pretty poor at finding compromise and finding contingency. Mm. But is it always better to be able to race everything everywhere? No. I don't think it is. I think, you know, if you look at GT3, it's amazing that if you buy a GT3 car, you can race it anywhere around the world. But it just means that we get less variation in stuff. Well, we've got more depth in the field. Uh, you know, we're not now seeing championships that, that, as we did with Pirelli World Challenge, where that was the only place in the world you could see the Cadillac actually racing. Um, but that was, you know, famously, um, a program that Stefan Rattel absolutely loathed for that reason. It was a manufacturer program in what he believed should not be a manufacturer-based championship. Uh, as far as the top level of prototype racing is concerned you are talking about actually a relatively small number of products it would be relevant to it potentially might be relevant to IMSA and it would be relevant to the FI World Endurance Championship and yes you could say that at some point it might be the case that you might want to roll that out into perhaps a continental championship depending on the level of accessibility the key to it the key to it is how many factories are going to come it's the easiest thing in the world to say just do DPI you do DPI today, who's going to come and run in the FIWC? Who's going to come and run in any race that is not in North America? And the answer is remarkably few. That is not a sustainable answer now, which means you either have got to free up more customer cars, which means, by the way, you're still dealing with the same uh, principally North American-based uh, bodies because these are the, the continental um, representatives of those makes, or you've got to attract new people to the uh, World Book, and that's unlikely when you're working so hard towards a new version of World Book in very short order. So DPI right now is not a viable option to help the WEC side of things, and you've got to ask whether or not that is more or less attractive a proposition uh, for the ACO and for LMEM who run that than just looking after the interests of, of Le Mans itself. I think we've got a little bit of time to allow them one last shot persuading us they've got a plan Kiwi Tijan on Facebook says and I, I didn't watch this race I don't believe you did either but Imza's race at Belial one of the Aim vs Sullivan Lexuses or Lexline uh, nearly took out a pit lane official who ostensibly wasn't paying close enough attention how rare of an occurrence was this especially when you factor in amateur drivers and the inclusion of broadcast personnel in the pit lane at sports car races um, they're very very diff- uh, they're very very uh, dangerous places uh, I'm very seldom ever in a pit lane a sports car race well for one reason I'm usually in a broadcast booth or a press room anyway 
But even given that opportunity, as I do have at several races, uh, I very seldom take that opportunity. And only normally to get some access that otherwise is a bit of a problem. Uh, but they are phenomenally dangerous places. Uh, and yes, we have seen some pretty nasty accidents. We've seen nasty accidents uh, in North America. I seem to recall quite a nasty one fairly recently in South Africa, in one of the South African endurance races. Right. Uh, the car coming on fire. Uh, there was there was all sorts going on in that one. Uh, it was it was really very messy indeed. Uh, but you know it's not unusual. We've seen um, cameramen clipped and injured uh, pretty famously by one of the Audi R10s, I think it was, uh, some years ago. And it's a bone of contention. I know from a number of the. Uh, the media in pit lane that at times some of the camera personnel and indeed the on-air talents don't have to wear the uh, the helmets that photographers do and I think that's pretty short-sighted actually I think if you're in line of sight and line of fire if you like uh, it would be a sensible thing to apply the same uh, stringent controls everywhere fire suits absolutely required um, you know we'll seldom go through and I'm on 24 hours for instance without there being at least one flare up somewhere um, they're dangerous places to be uh, and yes we have seen officials clipped uh, media clipped, team personnel clipped, uh, mercifully uh, none so very seriously that we've seen a loss of life in my time Next up is the fun section I'll be judging that Stephen <laughs> The first question is for me Ooh. So, do you want to read out or shall I? Uh, it's from Ron Tabstra uh, Round 2 of Get to Know the Doppelganger <laughs> Uh, for Mr Kilby cats or dogs cats good, oh, good answer yeah. they're evil they're planning something and it's brilliant absolutely great and have you ever been given a quote by a driver lost it because it was so funny not lost the quote but lost it yet uh, and what was the most bullshit quote you've ever been given I don't know if I've ever lost it in the middle of an interview because I've heard something so oh, funny have. I've been in interviews where I've been so you know, I've been so intensely listening to somebody and so interested that I've almost forgotten to have a question queued up in my mind because I've just been so focused on you know whatever they're telling me um, as for the most bullshit quote I've ever been given I don't think there's a specific one but there are times, aren't there, Graham, in modern sports car racing where you walk down a pit lane, you talk to people in garages, and you get sick of people you know, telling you stuff about BOP and how yeah. they're screwed. And it happens all the time. Not as much as it was maybe three yeah. or four years ago, but I tell you, I, there's nothing I hate more than hearing a driver tell me, we're two seconds off, we've got no chance down the strain, blah, 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 this and that, and then they go and win and get a set pole. That's Phil Keane you're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Phil, Phil, well, he's one example. Phil, I love him a bit. <laughs> Phil, Phil is the kind of guy... <laughs> it's great. Generally speaking, the racing driver bug of excuses happens after something's happened. <laughs> Phil is one of the very few exponents of actually uh, deploying the racing driver bug of excuses before something happens. And uniquely, he deploys it before actually disproving his own point. Uh, almost all the time um, I've not seen it but I hear that Barwell actually have a crystal ball and they can tell what's going to happen they can I've not seen it I think, I think you're fine that's, uh, that's, it. That, that's why Robin Liddell stands there looking so uncomfortable I think that's where they store it he's hiding it <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that uh, we've got James Counter next on Facebook says what is the alteration to the Le Mans track that you would remove you can't have taking the Mossange canes out Ooh, 
that's a very very good one I'm not unhappy with most of it um, I am a bit of a purist and traditionalist but I've seen what happens when it goes wrong at the Mans 24 hours and that place is vicious uh, it, when you see it go wrong at very high speed at Le Mans and the barriers are so close uh, it's pretty horrifying stuff and you know case for the prosecution here um, the uh, Mike Rockefeller shunts uh, on the rundown to Indianapolis in his Audi R10 and a McNish at Dunlop like Duval and the Porsche curves I know they're all Audi drivers sorry guys that wasn't aimed at you but yeah, when they're it goes wrong right. it goes horrifically wrong um, I'll, I'll say this much I have not seen too much of a reduction in the entertainment level for the changes that have come thus far. Some of those changes just plain needed to happen. I'll come to one of those in a moment. Um, but I'm not any less entertained by those areas of the track because there's a gravel track there. And if that means that you've not got a team taking their car back in a bucket, or worse still, they're driving an ambulance, that's fine by me. Um, I'm a purist in that I want to keep coming to Le Mans. I want to keep coming to those old-fashioned circuits. But I do think you need to take account of the fact that these cars are way more capable than they were. And our standards now as a society have changed. Our standards of what would be acceptable. Look, for instance, at the maelstrom of comments and potential risk that went the way of the Nürburgring after the Yamaha had his terrible accidents um, there, which, which unfortunately led to the death of a spectator. Um, he's not the only man to have done that in modern times. So, uh, talking to uh, you know a couple of couple of guys who've been through that exact same circumstance themselves, it still leaves a mark. But if the cost of, of getting to go to these great places is having to suck up the fact that we've got to have a little bit of safety work done, I have absolutely no problem. You know, yes, there are places that always needed doing. There's the the wall that um, Raul Goethe has pumped, uh, punted into um, at. Uh, at the end of the fourth, the uh, the uh, Porsche curves, one ago, and of course, famously at Tete Rouge, senseless accident that killed uh, Alan Simonson. And you know, when you look at it through fresh eyes, it just looked madness that you've effectively got Armco on a tree. Uh, it's going to do nothing. And um, sadly, that's a lesson we've learned after the event. Keep doing it. The guys who are responsible for motorsport safety, uh, I think, do a magnificent job. There are two things that I want to throw out there. One of which is the the alterations they've made to the pit straight. I'm not keen on the Michelin thing, the the the, the golf putter, and the the new Rolex start thing just makes the start shot and the the, the view of the cars coming yeah. up the hill to Dunlop just doesn't look as spectacular it's an thing. as it used to. It's an odd thing. I looked out that window uh, probably a couple of dozen times over the weekend. I just didn't notice them. No, because you just they're there now. Because they're there. I mean, okay, I'm not a photographer and. As we know, our friends, the photographers, will... You know what? You give them a million pounds, they'd moan about it. Because they've got to carry <laughs> it home. they wanted a million and one. No, no, because no, they've <laughs> got to carry it home and they're tired. But no, the, the answer is, of course, it's not the classic view. Um, if there was one thing I could change, it's a really, really good question. Well, I uh, quite like Dunlop as it is now, actually. I quite like that. Mm. But before, it was spectacular. Um, the other thing was, when I first started going to Le Mans as a spectator... Arnage, it was completely pitch black, and they've put a massive spotlight on that that covers um, the apex of Arnage. Mm-hmm. And from what I hear 
from my parents and various other people that I know who spectate every year, it takes away spectating from that corner because they don't come out, the cars don't come out of nowhere yeah. anymore and you can see the whole corner and, and one thing that's special is seeing those cars in the pitch black darkness at that sequence for Indianapolis. And then hard on the power. Yeah. Uh, so th- I mean, certainly I've stood there as a spectator and watched the cars through. It's amazing. They they come in and it, it, it's astonishing. It's one of the very few places where you can see how hard and how late these cars break and you know the, 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 the way in which they take uh, in, uh, the run down to Indianapolis full tilt and so late so late onto the brakes to deal with the slowest corner on the circuit is best, pretty special best thing for me about Arnage is the fact that it's one of the very few corners that I've certainly stood at where you stand looking at the exit of the corner and you can see how quickly they pull away into yep. a point where you can't see them anymore absolutely I mean they are so quick going down that straight good stuff um, James Counter again on Facebook says what's the strangest debris you have seen on track <laughs> hashtag me personally the awning gazebo that ended up on track on the IMSA round last year takes the prize thoughts and prayers MP you're a great stand in Stephen but I think you make a rubbish body double for MP yeah yeah you've not got that I'm, kind of well I'm not as sexy as Marshall no you're not and none of us are not, not, not. Nobody's as sexy as Marshall Pruitt. I'm sure she probably would agree no. with this. And I haven't got but a sexy voice either, like Marshall. He's Marshall, he's, he's got, got a very sexy voice. He's, he, he is it's like amazing. he is like the white walrus of love. Is, he is uh, Marshall Pruitt. That may is. be what we He'd do. He'd make here. a great soul singer. He would. Uh, strangest one. I think it happened. It was at Dubai 24 hours, and we had a, a drone on track. Uh, a drone crashed on track. I think it was Dubai 24 hours. Uh, it might just happen just at the start of the race. So we had that. We've had a cat. On track at Bahrain. Baseball at Mexico. Baseball at Mexico. Uh, we had all sorts that year. Kangaroos at Bathurst, obviously. We have our kangaroos at Bathurst. It's not debris necessarily. Well, it can know. be if it gets Well, hit. it caused debris when it landed on Peter Cox. There was a rabbit that ended up in a Mark VDS engine bay, wasn't there? The rabbit, we had... Uh, what was the... Was it a possum at, uh, in, the, um, in the Porsche at Daytona? Um, We'll, we'll steer away from roadkill uh, probably at some point, but all sorts of all sorts of bizarreness. Um, not debris so, so much. Well, I guess it was really, but one of the ones I do remember back in a British GT race some years ago, and it was I think was it Johnny Kane or was it Warren Hughes in one of the Team LNT cars came in, uh, having been duking it out for the lead of the race and just rolled into the pits to retirement. And uh, what had happened was there'd been side-to-side contact, not between his car, between our two other cars, which had stripped a sliver of the wheel rim. Uh, so it was basically a kind of uh, six-inch length of um, the alloy wheel rim, uh, in effectively like a, a, a broad knitting needle type thing, that when the TVR had run over it, it had basically fired it up through into the engine bay and straight through the brake master cylinder. Lovely. So, I mean, and, and we could see it. I mean, this, this thing was still embedded in there. So, yeah, those are the kind of things. Douglas Holzman, he says, you have six FIA World Endurance Championship... Uh, you, sorry, you have a six-race FIA World Endurance Championship for the Chump Car slash 24 Hours of Lemons. What are your six tracks? You can't have Spa, you can't have Le Mans or Daytona. Any other tracks are fair game. Yeah, Arena Essex, I think, for 24 hours with... Snestings is better than Bathurst. Yeah, it's better than Bathurst. Um, but So clearly Bathurst would be a cracker. I know they've just turned down the the, the Lemons um, prospect there, but uh, Bathurst... I don't know what these cars look like. Is this the one with the cars upside down? 
basically. I think this is the, the Lemons thing is the one where you have a very low maximum cost of the base car. Mm. So it basically, uh, I think the technical FIA term for it is shit boxes. Okay, so shitbox Grand Prix. Shitbox Grand Prix. Okay. So let's go for Arena Essex, short oval, anywhere. That would be funny, if nothing else. Cadwell? Uh, no, we've got to steer away from the UK tracks, man. Okay. It's a World Championship. Okay. So I think we're going to go for Arena Essex with no fewer than 80 cars. Um, so um, probably with regular cleanups, that might be a good idea. Uh, let's have a think. Laguna Seca would be quite fun, I think, with those cars. There's very many mm. of the ones I've seen racing that that would barely get up the hill. CTMP. Uh, two North American tracks, you see. Okay. Two oh. North American tracks. Into Lagos, on the basis that as these cars arrive, most of the people that would actually rob and kill you will realise they're such shit boxes, there's no point in robbing you, we've not got enough money. So that would be quite fun. Mons are the same for the same reason. Yeah. And that way you don't get thievery in your, your car because it's not going to be secure anyway, so you wouldn't leave anything in there. Nordschleifer? Nordschleifer, that would be hilarious if remarkably dangerous, and that would remove any prospect of us ever racing there again. <laughs> uh, so that's probably not a good idea. Um, and where else? Oh, a good one. Suhai, because yeah. it was suit shit boxes. But what the track that you said you never wanted to go back to? I don't want to go back to because it's, it's really uh, No, no, but they'd be fine there. <laughs> 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 They're in their natural habitat. The place is falling down. I think we've reached the last question, Graham. We've got um, Jakob Bain on Facebook. Bain. In the aftermath of this year's Rolex 24, we've had this big controversy of going back to green from red, which resulted in massive shunts and subsequent restoration of the red. We've been experiencing tough race conditions also on other tracks, like Spa in May. So I thought, mandatory rule for every sports car race, where if the race director wants to go back from red to either yellow or straight green, they have to perform five full laps of track, plus an in outlap and an in-lap in the fastest car racing in that race. Um, behind the wheel at full pace. Good idea, bad idea, why am I insane? Uh, I can't tell you why you're insane, only your doctor can do that, Jacob, but uh, what I would say is this. Generally speaking, the rule is try to get it back to green as, as soon as possible. I think putting in something with another cap, for me, just sounds like a bad idea. And I think the other thing to remember is this. That's fine if you're on a short track at Le Mans. Five laps is... Uh, at uh, that, that kind of speed is going to be getting on to it's 3 minutes 30 for a quick lap remember so what is that going to be you're going to be talking 15-20 minutes more in fact at uh, safety car speeds uh, it's just too long if actually what it needs is a clear up and remember we can have safety cars or slow zones put in uh, simply because a car is in line of fire so that can be sorted remarkably quickly quite often. Uh, you, you may remember, I'll give you a for instance, at uh, the Bathurst 12 hour, uh, I think about three, four years ago, where on the penultimate lap, one of the Porsche Cup cars spun out at the final turn. And the race went back, it went back to green, didn't it, on the penultimate lap at the final turn. The, the uh, intervention vehicle uh, basically snatched the Porsche out uh, to the runoff as the cars were coming out the chase and the race went back to green had they not been allowed to do that we wouldn't have had the end of that race that we did they are getting better at race directors definitely I mean Eduardo has been 
fantastic ambition. Is that way he handled that Fuji race a couple of years ago? Well, that, that I think was something we'd not seen before. So what, when Wadi did uh, the Fuji race when we had terrible race conditions, was we would go back from full course yellow to waved yellows in, or indeed from safety car rather, to wave yellows in the first sector. So in other words, tippy-toe, tippy-toe, don't let the cars uh, stack up into one of the real danger zones, which is that tricky turn one, the kind of off-camber uh, roller coaster, this tight right-hander, where if you've got cars in close contention, you can see that someone's going to have a bit of a pop there. That was not allowed. You were sending it back to green via a yellow flag zone, and it really worked. Yeah. So, you know, what you've got is a lot of intelligence and a lot of experience, and you know what? Sometimes they just get it wrong. Um, but Sparta it, didn't. I mean, the, the driving stands were astonishing. It's astoundingly good from everybody concerned. And uh, I think the answer is, look, are you insane? No, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, I'm more than happy to read about uh, something in the, the, uh, the tabloids that uh, after some atrocity where all your neighbours say, but he's such a quiet bloke. So I don't think you are insane. But uh, for me, that's the slippery slope uh, putting in a rule that says a maximum or minimum of something like that to me is the slippery slope towards where we've got to with strategy being removed elsewhere. Don't like it. Uh, we'll say goodbye, Stephen. So thank you for being with us. This has been our ramble through the weekend sports cars as we lead up to the Le Mans 24 hours week. We'll be on, uh, in my case, a ferry, in your case, in a tunnel. Um, on the way down to Le Mans Friday, Saturday uh, to start with scrutineering there will be some surprises there uh, trust me um, and some more surprises through the week lots of news to come we'll share with you that what we intend to be doing with not just the weekend sports cars but in particular the inside the sports car paddock uh, this coming uh, race week at Le Mans is a daily podcast of interviews and feature material uh, which we'll be collecting. Stephen and I'll be collecting around scrutineering and around the pits and paddock and the, uh, and in some cases, maybe even the fun areas of the campsites uh, through the week, uh, produced from his home by Marshall Pruitt. So there will be daily goodness to catch up with what is special about the greatest endurance race on the planet. Uh, Someone even say the greatest race on the planet. I'm not going to disagree with you. Uh, for now, this has been the Weekend Sports Cars with thanks again to our friends at Cooper Tyres and those wonderful people at the Justice Brothers. You've been Stephen Kilby. I've been Graham Goodwin. He, was a while ago, was Marshall Pruitt. We'll see you next week.